0: You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that shape our world. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane.
1: And I'm Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of British intelligence, otherwise known as MI6.
0: Together, Richard and I talk to the top decision makers and influencers who shape world events to try and understand what it is that drives the defining choices and decisions that have global impact and affect us all. It's now been a month since the October 7th massacre by Hamas on Israeli soldiers and civilians, the worst attack ever in the history of the state of Israel and the worst loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust. It's also been a month since the start of the newest Israeli military campaign in Gaza on Hamas in retaliation for that attack. We're now also seeing an erosion, piece by piece, of international support for Israel in terms of its military response to that attack given the very stiff loss of life being incurred in Gaza. The mounting civilian casualties has now caused more than a dozen UN agencies and NGOs to condemn the mounting death toll, calling for an immediate ceasefire. The UN Secretary General has said this week, Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. President Biden has kept close contact with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who recently gave an interview to ABC News, My Old Parish, where he said that ultimately Israel will have overall security responsibility in Gaza for an indefinite period after its war with Hamas.
1: I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of uh, Hamas terror on a scale that we couldn't imagine.
0: The Israeli army is now deep in Gaza and has effectively split the territory into two and encircled the largest city, Gaza City, after more than a week of its military incursion. Richard, we are going to hear from both Israel and Palestine today on our podcast. We have got Dr. Michael Oren, the former member of the Israeli Knesset and Israeli ambassador, as well as the former Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, Salam Fayyad. But before we hear from them, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on what Netanyahu said on US TV. It was the first and clearest indication, I think, that we've had from Israel on what a post-Gaza operation reality might look like.
1: Well, I would characterize it as a soundbite. It's a very simple thing for Netanyahu to say. And, of course, there will be an expectation when the fighting stops that Israel doesn't surrender the position it will have won militarily and therefore it's going to play a prime role in the security of Gaza. The question, I think, is how would that be configured and what would it actually mean in practice? And I think the idea that somehow you're going to have Israeli security forces in there policing Gaza is probably impractical and unlikely. I think what one's looking forward to is some sort of political negotiation with an authority, probably an international authority, which is invested with support from the um, Israeli state itself and, of course, from moderate Arab states as well. And I mean, to have something which is going to be basically workable Even if it's not really acceptable to the local Palestinian population, it's probably going to have to be based on Arab nationalities. What I mean by that is the resources of countries like Oman or Jordan or the Emirates, Dubai, um, Abu Dhabi. And you can see how they could configure some sort of peacekeeping force in which the Israelis would retain some sort of say. I mean, look, this is a very complicated issue. And I think what's important now is that people do begin to think a little bit about the aftermath, because when you have purely military objectives, they're largely meaningless, unless they're linked up to what your political objectives are going to be when the fighting stops. And I, I think we are all very much aware that... Israel has been manoeuvred by Hamas and by the international response that Hamas has, as it were, provoked into a very difficult position. And at the moment, it's getting more and more difficult
0: for them. A lot of people have said that there is no military solution to this conflict. Soundbite's obviously a lot easier to get out there than the accompanying details and, and logistics.
1: I mean, you could have a phrase like that, which is like four or five words. And then, you know, you've got to imagine that behind it, there's going to be a file with 500 pages. So it gives a small indication of direction. It certainly doesn't give an indication of methodology or actual solutions to a very, very intractable problem.
0: Thanks, Richard. Well, as I said, we're hearing from both sides today. First, Dr. Michael Oren, the former ambassador to the U.S. and a former member of the Israeli Knesset between 2015 and 2019. He also served as a deputy minister in the prime minister's office in charge of public diplomacy. I started by asking Michael his thoughts on that interview with Netanyahu and what he thought was the future of Gaza and the security of both Israelis and Palestinians.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Julia. And uh, it's a really interesting question. It's a new question. You know, every round of fighting we've had with Hamas, this is now the fifth round uh, going back since 2008. Americans particularly come to us and say, "Okay, what's your end game? What's your plan for the morning after? And frankly, we haven't had one. The morning after was you go back to the status quo ante. You pay off Hamas with Qatari money. You try to improve the quality of life in the Gaza Strip, for example, letting thousands of Palestinian workers into Israel every day. Uh, it turns out Hamas wasn't really interested in that. And so now, finally, finally, Israel's thinking about the end game. And there's many discussions. So I'll, I'll give you my idea, if it would. It's in some level dovetails with Netanyahu, I'm not a spokesman for him. But clearly, we have to change the status quo. We may have to create a cordon sanitaire around Gaza to make sure that people can't come to the border anymore. Previously, houses could come up pretty much to the border, and that was too dangerous. We have to work to demilitarize the Gaza Strip to make sure that there are no missiles there anymore, no more arsenals there. But I think the most crucial thing is to internationalize Gaza. So it should no longer be Israel's problem. It should even be Egypt's problem. It should be the international community's problem. And the fact of the matter is, it is the international community's problem. I mean, we've seen now how massive American naval forces have had to move to the Middle East, and some of them actually engaging in combat because of Gaza. So it's clearly not just our problem. And I would hope that we work with some type of international force. I think I would hope that that international force would have a large inter Arab contingent in it, perhaps uh, Saudi, perhaps Emirati, other Arab countries, but that the overall security for the Gaza Strip would remain in our hands. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean necessarily Israeli troops patrolling the streets of Gaza. It means the air, the sky, the ability of hot pursuit. It's a very similar arrangement. We have an Area A uh, of the West Bank, which is under exclusive Palestinian political and police control, but we do have the right of hot pursuit. We know that there's a terrorist cell operating uh, in those areas. Our forces can go in there and arrest that cell. And significant security involvement will continue to have uh, in Gaza. I think the bigger question, much bigger than Israel's security, is what's going to be the governance of Gaza? What's that going to look like? And there we get some some thorny questions, and I'll be very candid about it. The big question is, do we permit or facilitate the reinstallment of a Palestinian Authority governance in the Gaza Strip? Now, last time, that didn't work out so well. In 2005, we withdrew from Gaza. And we watched this. And then almost immediately Gaza became a Hamas uh, stronghold and immediately Hamas began firing rockets at Israel. It's only uh, less than a year later in in, uh, 2008 that the first Gaza war broke out. It wasn't by accident. So the question is, do we do this again? It's the same Mahmoud Abbas who runs the Palestinian Authority. He's in the 18th year of his four-year term. He won't stand for re-election because he knows Hamas will win. He and his administration are notoriously corrupt and disliked by the Palestinians. So it's a real thorny question. And yeah, there are some Israelis who think we should keep the Palestinians divided and somehow get out from under the pressure of a two-state solution. I'm not one of them. I'm interested in having peaceful governance in Gaza and, if possible, political horizon for the Palestinians. The question is who, who and what. And I think here we're premature in looking at that. We should carefully keep it as a goal.
0: You made that point recently. I think you were talking to Jake Tapper of, of CNN when you raised that issue of Mahmoud Abbas, the fact that he's in the 18th year of his four year term. You said the fact that he doesn't stand for re-election is because Hamas always destroys him. Hamas had a landslide victory. Hamas is very popular among the Palestinian population. Let's say, for example, that Israel is successful in its strategic objective of wiping out Hamas as it currently stands. It's not able to wipe out Hamas as an idea. And the Israeli operation in Gaza is incurring a very steep civilian casualty. I know that there is not a consolidated, verified number of civilian casualties because we have to rely on Hamas for those figures. Let's say there is new Palestinian leadership in Gaza, as you suggest. Does that include a Gaza that is essentially still under siege by the Israelis, a Gaza that is still home to Palestinians who do not have freedom of movement, where there are not enough trucks coming into Gaza daily compared, you know, with the daily requisite number of of calories per person in the population? Will it still be under siege? Will it still be sort of cut off and, and the Palestinians inside unable to leave, giving credence to people who claim that Gaza is essentially, quote, an open air prison?
2: Okay, a question about the siege. Um, you're, you're talking to the bad guy here. You're talking about the guy who was in charge of the Gaza blockade. And this was back in 2017. I was in Knesset. I was a deputy to the prime minister. One day he calls me in and I says, I got some bad news for you. You're in charge of Gaza. And you're in charge, you're in charge of trying to find ways of increasing or enhancing the quality of life in Gaza. Uh, you don't want this job because one of the many things you find out immediately is that, you know, Iran, which is deeply embedded in Gaza, is willing to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. They don't care about the Palestinians. Um, Mahmoud Abbas is willing to fight Hamas to the last Israeli. And the Hamas itself doesn't care about its people. So we have a crossing. It was called in Hebrew, Keren Shalom, but it's kind of an ironic name. It was called the Vineyard of Peace. a huge crossing. And uh, it had the capacity of handling 1,200 very large flatbed trucks every day, filled with everything, yeah, food, medicine, building materials, everything, because the blockade was not a food blockade, it was just a military blockade. It was arms and what was known as dual use issues. So if you brought in a irrigation pipe, it wasn't gonna to go to irrigation because Hamas was gonna make it into a rocket. So we had to be very careful about the dual use issues. But it was never food, It was never there was never medicine, there was never a shortage because Hamas wanted a shortage. So of the 1200 trucks, Some days Hamas would let in 800, sometimes as little as 400, because Hamas actually wanted a level of humanitarian distress in Gaza to keep the population a little hungry, to keep the population angry, to keep the population dependent on Hamas. I mean, you you can make this stuff up. I mean, this is Hamas who uses and loses hundreds of children digging their own tunnels every year. they they were losing about two, three hundred children a year in tunnel construction. They they don't care. Just throw out everything you know about human decency when you're dealing with Hamas.
0: I appreciate the need for Israeli security and why the Israelis feel they are justified in the blockade. But would you not say that the Israelis are kind of falling into a trap and they and it helps Hamas with their recruitment? It helps Hamas paint Israel as the bad guy. And it essentially gets you nowhere.
2: And I would say, you know, to some degree, yes, we can destroy Hamas. We can uproot and we can devastate. We can't destroy the idea of Hamas. No more than the coalition could destroy the idea of ISIS or the ideal of, Al Qaeda. What you can do is degrade the organizations. So today, Al-Qaeda and al- ISIS are far less threatening because the organizations have been degraded. I say this to Hamas. There'll be Hamas. There'll be Hamas because Ma- Hamas is basically the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood are everywhere. You know, the Egyptians basically you know, cream them in Egypt, and they're still around, aren't they? And, um, and you, that's a fight that is a generational fight over education, the way children are educated. Hamas educated Palestinian kids from the age of two, three to kill, 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 stab, 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 summer cabs, you know, with the bite. You've seen the pictures. That will end, but the idea will still be there. And maybe we can offer the Palestinians an alternative.
0: I know you have a history of working with Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you think, obviously, Hamas is to blame for the massacre of October 7th and the horrific, horrific things that happened in, in southern Israel? Do you think it is fair? to apportion some of the blame to Netanyahu and some of his policies. And what do you make of the reports recently from 2019, where he allegedly made some points in a Likud meeting, where he was quoted as saying, those who oppose a Palestinian state should support the transfer of funds to Gaza, because maintaining the separation between the PA and the West Bank and Hamas would prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. He's not the only Israeli politician who's said this. Far-right M.K. Bezel Smotrich, he's now the finance minister in the, the government. He's said so himself in 2015, that it was Israeli policy to treat the PA as a burden and Hamas as an asset.
2: Well, let me say this. I am not a spokesman for Benjamin Netanyahu. I haven't worked with him in many years. I know him. He's a very different man today than when I went but so I want to say that because the Palestinian issue is immensely complex and frankly, very intractable. And there are no solutions. There are better management situations. And this is a conversation I actually used to have with him because I, I saw my job with him as being the, the, the voice that he didn't want to hear. And, um, and this is the voice that I said to him. I said, Israel's security is like a bank account. Right? And you have to put deposits in your bank account. For example, in 1948, after the UN had partitioned Palestine into a Jewish and Arab state, we, the Zionist movement accepted it, and the Arabs rejected it, and they went to war. And because they rejected it and went to war, that put a deposit in our bank account. We were to draw on that diplomatic bank account to give us leeway on the battlefield. We went way beyond that partition resolution because the world understood that we had done our best. That was the deposit. We had made a deposit in our peace account. And I can give you other examples. In 67, uh, the Israeli government went the extra mile to prevent war. The Arabs wanted to go to war. So that was a deposit in our bank account. And so in 67, we were able to triple the size of the state of Israel. And no one in the international community gave us a hard time. Nobody, not Great Britain, not the United States. But in other cases where we were perceived by the world to have not tried to make peace, When we went to war, we went to war with an empty bank account. And I used to say to them, now, if we go to war, and I was pretty sure we'd go to war soon, we are going not just with an empty bank account, we're going with an overdraft. And I think you're seeing the results of this now. We we gained a tremendous amount of international sympathy because of the, the massacres of October 14th. But if you are sitting in the UK or elsewhere, you saw how long that sympathy lasts, which wasn't very long. And I think if we had gone, you know, the extra mile or more in convincing the world that we were wanted to make peace, but the other side didn't, I think we would have had more leeway.
0: I wanted to ask what your thoughts were on the fact that there is still strong, but diminishing support for Israel as the years have gone by. There was a new Gallup poll that suggested support from Democrats for Israel is at an all-time low. Net sympathy is solidly positive among older generations, including baby boomers. But among millennials, there are now 42% sympathizing with the Palestinians and 40% with the Israelis. How worried are you about the fact that there is lessening support for Israel among? Americans who are Israel's strongest allies and really guarantors for their safety and security.
2: Well, of course, I'm concerned, and you know when people come to me and say, "Well, you know, two thirds of the American public support Israel." Sometimes it's higher, as much as eighty percent of the American public support Israel. And yeah, this Generation Z problem is a problem, but you know, these people will grow up and they'll see the world in a more nuanced way. Maybe I, that doesn't give me any great, uh, you know, solace. It doesn't, and it's something we have to work on. And it eventually will find its way into policymaking. And we have to be prepared for that. again i want to go back to my metaphor of the you know the peace bank account Uh, we have to keep on making deposits and to show the world that we want peace and if there's no peace it's not our fault and that's not always easy we have a public opinion too and i must say after this fighting everyone's talking now about you know the day after there's going to be a two state solution i can't think of a probably a less conducive time to start thinking about a two-state solution because The vast majority of israelis and i'm talking about israelis i know who were significantly to the left of center are now dead set against it why for the same reason i said earlier why mahmoud abbas won't run for re-election hamas will take over just who is going to take over the palestinian state we have a palestinian state in the west bank we're not going to be facing a tactical problem we're going to be facing an existential problem it's the longest border we have goes from the golan heights in the north to the gulf of a in the south we'll be dead and everyone's saying, well, in your right mind, we're not going to let Hamas take over the West Bank. So if, if you want to think about solu- solutions, certainly think about creative solutions that don't include two-state solutions. You can talk about federal solutions. You can talk about cantonment. You can talk about local autonomy. There's ways you can move forward if you're not wedded to a solution that's not going to work.
0: Are you saying that the two-state solution essentially is dead in the water in all practical senses?
2: Well, got, you're asking the wrong person. I never thought it was ever alive. So <laughs> it's not dead in the water because it's never alive. And for very deep historical reasons, it's not, you know, not because of the Israeli government or any particular Palestinian government. It has to do whether these two peoples are willing to sustain a state structure that is permanent legitimate.
0: On that, there was a really interesting interview recently with Mustafa Barghouti. I'm sure you know uh, a Palestinian doctor who has been a longtime Palestinian political activist. He said essentially he believes that this can only end one of two ways that either there is a two-state solution on the 1967 borders that Palestinian refugees have a right of return and all the Israeli settlements in the West Bank are essentially dismantled. The other option he gave was one where Palestinians were allowed to have full citizenship. He didn't specify Israeli citizenship, but he said, for all people living on this land to enjoy full citizenship, equal rights under the law. Of the two options, do you think either one is more likely? Are there either one that you are more comfortable with? Or is there a third that you can see that is viable, that is legitimate, that would be fair to both Israelis and Palestinians?
2: Neither of them are going to happen. And neither of them are new. I've heard about them for, you know, for 30, 40 years now. But there are many alternatives. And the chances of these alternatives happening is if we abandon that sort of Manichaean view, it's either or. Because either or is not viable. Israel's not about to commit national suicide, and the Palestinians have proven, I would say, spectacularly incapable of sustaining a state structure. What we can do, though, is we can look at other solutions. I don't know if maybe solution is the wrong word, but certainly ways of going forward. So I mentioned federal solutions, where you have a consortium of smaller states. Gaza could be a smaller state. What we call Samaria could be a smaller state. You can have federal solutions with Jordan, and this has been advised in the past there'd be a Palestinian federation that would link with Jordan as far as I can sort of be linked with Jordan and is with Israel it could be a tripartite federation you could have cantonment where you can have a great degree of um, of regional uh, autonomy but be linked by some type of overarching structure you could have a trusteeship a trusteeship could be an international trusteeship it could be an inter-arab trusteeship by the way that was once proposed for the, for Israel back uh, by the Americans in 1947 nothing's new here by the way well, these, these ideas are, you know, been tried. Sometimes they work.
0: When you say linked with Jordan, what does that mean? Does that mean Palestinians leave Israel and become Jordanian?
2: No. Israeli Arabs remain Israeli Arabs. But there can be link. There could be an economic link. There can be diplomatic links. You could have federal solutions. The idea is to be thinking creatively. And I must say, you know, I've been talking to officials in Washington, uh, Democratic officials. They understand that the two-state solution is a non-starter. Nobody knows what, who would run that state. No one would know what the, the nature of that state is. There's no discussion even among the Palestinians about the nature of that state. Okay? Fifty years ago, they used to talk about creating a democratic, secular state in Palestine. You haven't heard that since before you were born. So what does the state look like? The Palestinian Authority's biggest singular expenditure is on Moss. So what does the state look like? And it, can it sustain itself? Nobody knows these questions very skeptical about its ability to, to sustain itself. Maybe I'm wrong. So, all right, that's my feeling. But you're talking to someone who actually wants to see the needle move. I'm not doing this to, in any way, say that the Palestinians don't deserve self-determination. They don't deserve to, you know, to end what they call the occupation. All that I accept. The question is, how can this actually be done? I'm all about real, real solutions and not slogans.
0: I don't think I've heard you say that about the occupation before. I think that's really interesting.
2: Well, I said what they call the occupation. I have a problem with the word occupation because people can occupy its own land. But it definitely I acknowledge the fact that we occupy people. There's no question about it. Not a land. We have to make that distinction.
0: I just want to go back to the current situation in Gaza, last of all, because I I did want to ask you about your feelings on the hostages. The Israeli government said that they are targeting Hamas in the tunnels. Do we not think that a lot of civilian hostages are being held in those very tunnels? Obviously, this is a really, really difficult position for the Israeli government to be in. I'm not offering any other sort of options for how the Israeli military should carry out this operation, but. What are your thoughts on the fact that the Israelis are bombing areas where their own hostages are thought to be held? I mean, are you hearing from angry families about this?
2: Some. I've visited a great number of families. Uh, Others understand that there's actually no alternative, and that a ceasefire means the death of the state of Israel. ceasefire means Hamas gets away with mass murder. It means we cannot actually restore the 250,000 Israelis who have been evacuated. We can't restore them to their homes. You wouldn't go back to a home. Hamas is, you know, can reconstitute itself and strike again, and it also kills our regional security, our regional deterrence power, because everybody in the region will get wind of this and say, oh, you can you can bomb Israel, you can massacre Israelis, and the, and the international community is going to tie our hands and oppose a ceasefire. You've got to get away with it. This is the hardest issue. Can you imagine having to make this call as, as a decision maker? I was of the opinion, and I may pay harshly for this in the future, saying that we had a better chance of releasing the hostage by sending in ground forces than not. Because uh, sending the ground forces increased the pressure on Hamas. Uh, my feeling is a gut feeling. I may be wrong again. Is that Hamas will treat the hostages better, uh, knowing that they would be used as a bargaining card, and uh, for want of saying this more delicately, a living hostage is worth more than a dead one. And I think they also want to keep the hostages sort of looking good and health so that when they go before the cameras, they can say all those things you've heard about Hamas is wrong.
0: Do you think the Israeli government are doing enough to safeguard the potential? of rescuing these hostages.
2: I would be confident, and I say this without any authority, they're doing the utmost. There's hundreds of miles of tunnels underground. It's actually inconceivable to us. And they go down hundreds of feet. I mean, the easiest solution would be to flood them with seawater, flood them with with fuel and set set them on fire. We can't do that because of the hostages. They're down there somewhere. We have to assume they're down. They may not all be down there. They're not all in the hands of Hamas, they're in the hands of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Many are in the hands of families. Families have the family hostage that they're hoping to sell. My assumption now that as the circlement of Gaza gets smaller and smaller, Israeli forces get closer, for example, the Shifa Hospital and that Hamas headquarters, there's going to be someone who's going to say, okay, we're going to make a deal. You get the hostages, we get out of here free. Now, um, Again, old enough to remember Beirut 1982. Uh, we did the same thing with the PLO. They all got on boats and they went to Tunis. If I could call on the shots, I'd say, if someone said that to me, Hamas gets to go away to to Algeria, but we get the 240 hostages, i say, go for it. And uh, I would make that deal. Let's see if it actually happens.
0: Dr. Michael Oren there, the former Israeli ambassador to the US and former member of the Israeli Knesset. On the need for creative solutions and what needs to happen next, we now turn to Salam Fayyad. He's the former prime minister of the Palestinian Authority between 2007 and 2013. I started by asking him, Given what happened on October the 7th, the atrocities that took place, could he at least agree that Israel must surely be given a right to respond to Hamas?
3: Thank you very much, Julia, for having me on one decision.
0: Eighteen different United Nations agencies and NGOs have called for an immediate ceasefire to Israel. They have expressed shock and horror at the mounting death toll from the conflict, it's really upset the Israeli government. They've been really upset with the rebukes that they have received from the international community, given the scale of the airstrikes. The thing is though, because of what happened on October 7th, the Israelis see Hamas as an existential threat. The idea that this organization may retain the capabilities to carry out what they did against the Israelis again, in the future. This is something that Khaled Mushal, speaking to Al Arabiya recently, he said, listen, nations are not easily liberated. The Russians sacrificed 30 million people in World War II. The Vietnamese sacrificed 3.5 million people until they defeated the Americans, so on and so forth. Palestinians are like any other nation. No nation is liberated without sacrifices. Qazi Hamad From the Hamas Political Bureau on Lebanese TV, he said the Al-Aqsa flood operation, the October 7th massacre in Israel, is just the first. There will be a second, a third, a fourth. Will we have to pay a price? Yes, and we are ready to pay it. We are a nation of martyrs and we are proud to sacrifice martyrs. Hamas leadership have expressed plainly that they are willing to throw as many Gazans under the bus in order to attack Israel. Would you say that... For any peace, for any long-time secure peace, there can be no Hamas, because Hamas will just inevitably drag Palestinians and Gazans into more endless cycles of conflict with the Israelis. I'm asking if Hamas needs to be eradicated for the benefit of Palestinians as well as Israelis.
3: The point is, uh, Israel now is engaging in a massive campaign against people in Gaza, actually. Now, October 7 happened, and then Israel said, we, we definitely have to retaliate. Look at what happened to us, and don't come cry to us when we retaliate and, and respond in kind to deter. But they really will be going on with a campaign that's about eradication. They use the expression about Hamas in, in, in reference to what you just said. We need to eradicate Hamas. We need to fully destroy it and, and all of that sort of thing. Now, when you look at Hamas, actually, and what it is, I would say that that's an impossibility. Hamas is a political movement. So when you set a goal of your campaign, I'm talking about Israel here, as one that is targeting the elimination, eradication of a political movement, I mean, you know that that's an exercise in futility at best. For us Palestinians, it's catastrophic and look at what's happening. So what I'm really saying is that going after targets, when you know that civilians are in harm's way, Putting civilians' lives in danger, knowingly, that is a crime under international law. And when you introduce into the discourse the what we're really talking about here, in terms of the disproportionality, that then it really all begins to make sense.
0: I appreciate where you're coming from, Ms. Fad. You can absolutely disagree with how Israel is carrying out its aim of getting rid of Hamas because as a terrorist organization that targets civilians, that kills children, people indiscriminately, and that has stated explicitly in its charter terrorist goals that it seeks the destruction of Israel and all the Israelis and Palestinian citizens of Israel that there can be no future for a group like Hamas in that form. Now, I'm asking you this specifically because you wrote in Foreign Affairs recently, and a lot of people agree with you, that there needs to be a new Palestinian leadership. There needs to be, as you say, a properly reconfigured Palestinian authority, which you wrote was the best option for the day after the day after the military operation in Gaza, and beyond, and you go into a bit further of what you are proposing. You said the first step must be the immediate and unconditional expansion of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, to include all major factions and political forces, including Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Now, you've said already that there are large parts of the Palestinian population that do support Hamas, that do support Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other terrorist organization. But how can any future rely on the legitimization of a group that calls for the indiscriminate murder of children, of civilians, that wants the destruction of the state of Israel, that will not see the Israelis as a viable partner for peace. They don't want a state of Israel living alongside a state of Palestine. How does that work?
3: First of all, you know, the characterization of factions as terrorists or not terrorists as you know, these are characterizations that are made by certain countries bilaterally, or maybe even a group of countries. But you know, beyond that, what you're really talking about and raising as a question of maybe impossibility or difficult to see how could it be possible that an organization like this might be included in the future. To get to that future, we need some kind of really political process. How can an organization, that stands on the kind of platform Hamas stands on, be a party to a process that could lead to peaceful settlement or or reconciliation? My answer to this question is that it, it happened before, not only in the Palestinian context, but elsewhere. And doing otherwise actually produced results that are counterproductive relative to the insistence on exclusion from the outset. Let me just basically remind your audience actually, that the PLO itself, if you go back 30, 35 years ago, if you go back to 1988, before 1988, and especially 1993, when Oslo declarations were signed, you can look at what was written in the media now, take out take out PLO and you can put in Hamas. You would, you'd find the story not changed at all. That's where the PLO was, and that's how the PLO was viewed. And actually, As you know, I'm sure, it was not before in 1988 that the Palestine Liberation Organization signaled its willingness to accept as a solution to the conflict the emergence of an independent Palestinian state on the territory Israel occupied in 1967, and that the world started to really engage with it in a process that ultimately culminated in the signing of the Oslo Accords. So that's where the PLO was. And yet it was the partner piece peace, and it was. What I'm really talking about here is a PLO that includes all of these points of view. And the PLO acting on behalf of all of us Palestinians then would negotiate with Israel, provided that the process this time around is preceded by a formal recognition of our rights as a people, including the right to self-determination, including the right of such a state.
0: It's a good point. But do you not think, however, that October 7th has changed that, that Hamas have crossed the Rubicon, that now there is no way Israel is going to be willing to sit down with this group? Perhaps they would have been before. Perhaps, you know, maybe they could have been persuaded to. But now, given what happened, the scale of the savagery, the horrific things that happened, that now Hamas have gone to a point where they cannot return back. And they have also demonstrated with their words that they have no remorse over October 7th, and they have even threatened to do it again. It's different from the PLO in the 80s, when the PLO were carrying out bombings and targeting civilians. You're right to point out that the PLO was able to turn around its image internationally and present itself as a partner for peace. We're not talking about that kind of Damascene conversion for Hamas here in 2023,
3: are we? Uh, but actually, we can go back in history and find instances where in the immediate aftermath of a transgression, particularly what was at a massive scale, things like that were said. This may sound like foreign right now, but as a matter of fact, uh, Israel itself tried desperately to find an alternative to the PLO to deal with. It's possibly the case, arguably the case uh, from my point of view, uh, that Israel really never internalized the idea of a sovereign Palestinian state on the territory occupied in 1967. So, for example, it looked for ways to deal with local leadership, helping them out and all of that in the face of the PLO. And it is no secret, actually, that as best as it could, Israel tried to avoid having to deal with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And I remind you, some factions of the PLO did engage in, in acts of violence and aggression throughout the world. And that's how the PLO was characterized. If you really want to move outside of the personal context, actually, without really necessarily stories being completely identical, context identical and all of that sort of thing, it is not really the first time in history that in the aftermath of something horrific, your parties, at least eventually, end up having to really deal. Look at North Ireland, for example, and what happened. So history is replete with examples. Look at Afghanistan case in point. I mean, what possibly could be more horrific than the attacks that took place on the United States September 11, 2000? I mean, and here we are, 20 years later, the Americans were negotiating with whom? With Taliban to really exit from Afghanistan. That's one way. The other way is to really say we will not deal with with anyone. That's point number one. Point number two, without in any way wishing to be understood as someone who really condones violence, certainly not against civilians, for sure, and where acts of aggression were committed against civilians, that's to be totally condemned, for sure. And I myself call for there to be given the conflicting stories about what happened, what didn't happen, let the guns be silenced today. And tomorrow, an international commission of inquiry, an independent commission of inquiry, undertake a thorough investigation of what happened on October 7th and what has been happening relentlessly since October 7th. Any one party or state and non-state actors are not exempt from the operation of international material, law, Geneva Conversion, what have you regarding the protection of civilians. I'm very serious about this. And there has to really be accountability. There's no question about that. And good part of the reason why we keep finding ourselves in the position we are, because no such accountability was exacted or expected or pursued before. So that that is the issue.
0: I take your point. Mr. Fayyad, you were prime minister of the Palestinian Authority for, for six years between 2007 and June 2013. You had previously served as finance minister for a couple of terms before then. What do you say to critics of the Palestinian Authority who say that for many Palestinians, it was not legitimate leadership, Long-standing accusations of corruption, the Palestinian ministers who drove very flashy cars in the West Bank, had mansions built for them in Ramallah, in the West Bank. Only two years ago, just over two years ago, PA security forces stormed the house of a Palestinian distant, beat him with clubs, took him away. This is Nizar Banat. I'm sure you've heard of him. He was dead an hour after PA security officials dragged him from his house. Officials responsible have still not been charged for that. What do you say to people who do not regard the PA as legitimate leaders and representatives of the Palestinian people?
3: Look, Julia, uh, in the article that you cited that I wrote recently, and I wrote about this before, I used only one word. You'll find that I said misrule. Yes, it's one word, but it, it really captures all of the transgressions that it is, it's meant to. It's not really meant to kind of sweep any of what you have said under the rug. The failure is there, a doctrinal failure, the one that I referred to, the, the bet that the PLO made. And what is the, PA? PA is the creation of PLO creation of Oslo Accords, essentially. So, that paradigm failed. It's a failure of a doctrine. But in addition, there was misrule that took many of the forms that you have outlined. And these forms of misrule are actually, first and foremost, felt by the person in public. And so that's why I myself have stood always on a platform that said good governance first with all its precepts and not only in finance in the sense of, you know, transparency. You mentioned some aspects of financial excesses here and there, but really fundamentally, fundamentally, at the core of good governance is, is how it is that you really manage the relationship between those who govern and the govern. If consent of the governed is not possible to secure for one reason or another, elections are not held. That does not exempt the government from really putting the interests of those governed front and center. So clearly there is that failure. And that has definitely, I'm here to really tell you, acknowledge without any hesitation. It's not only the failure of doctrine, but also the failure when it comes to judging uh, how you know, the PA went about the business of governing administering the affairs of Palestinian people in Gaza. If you allow me, Jody, just like one point that I really meant to say before we really got into this, and I have no issue really continuing this conversation on this particular issue, because until and unless, we start by looking in the mirror and seeing what it is, what the failures were, and what really needs to happen to redress them, and that's part of, part of it of the reconfiguration that I'm talking to you about, but on the question of who is to be excluded, who is to be included, and all of that sort of thing. And I don't want to really spend too much time go- looking at history here, but look at the makeup of the current Israeli government. When was it, as a matter of fact, not, I mean, we certainly have no say on who governs Israel. We Palestinians do not vote in those elections. But look at what they have. Look at what was happening in the West Bank before October 7th. For about a year, there was speculation that, with good reason, that we're not very far removed from eruption of the Third Intifada. Gaza had nothing to do with this. It really was all based on what was happening in West Bank, what was happening in Jerusalem, what was happening in the Luxembourg, and all of those grievances with all settler violence, outright acts of terror, with the protection of the Israeli army, houses burned, places of worship, etc., etc. This is the government... It's not really some renegades, you know, going out and rampaging or another there. This is policy. These are actually cabinet officers who actually say these things. They say to us Palestinians, forget it. State, forget about it. No no such thing. Those elements in the Israeli government even do not wish to see EPA, which is a product of Oslo, which has turned into an instrument with this important for Palestinian people and which has really been providing Israel, the occupying power with the cover, political cover, to say we're not an apartheid state.
0: Before speaking to you, I spoke to Dr. Michael Oren, who is a former U.S. ambassador to Israel, and I put to him something that Mustafa Barghouti said recently in an interview to the BBC, where he said either the two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians, end up living together side by side he said on 1967 lines that there was palestinian sovereignty over their own areas in the west bank or the palestinians are given citizenship they are there is an end to the occupation they are given their rights and full equal rights he didn't say state of Israel, but I think that's what he was what he was meaning. What are your thoughts on this? Because I think a lot of people now do say for many reasons, including the fact that there is no viable contiguous area for Palestinians in the West Bank now, that the two state solution is essentially dead in the water. What, what, what are your feelings on that?
3: Yes, we are prepared to engage in a political process, one that is not based on just, let's start over. You know, that's not really what we want. Given the major structural defects that I talked to you about, I think it's important for us to condition our willingness to engage in a political process that's about the emergence of Palestinian state on the territories occupied in 1967 by an explicit, formal recognition by the government of Israel of our right to... that state that's very important we need to have that before we really sit around any table to negotiate an outcome because we cannot just really start over uh, ignoring how damaging it was for us to get into process that was not based on recognition of our own rights as a people key amongst those rights since we've talked about palestinian state is our right it. it does not mean lack of willingness to negotiate to the contrary i mean you hear it said time and again Israel is not willing, and this is not the current government. You know, Netanyahu himself repeatedly said before this government, there is not going to be at all ever allowed Palestinian sovereignty or any sovereignty other than Israel's on the territory between River Jordan and the Mediterranean. His words, his words, how can we possibly be expected to rush again into a political process without, at the beginning, saying, wait a minute, if you want to deal, let's just first hear it. Just as we recognize your right to exist in peace and security back in 1993, we need for that to be reciprocated. That's language that Bibi Netanyahu himself was fond of when he first became prime minister. The show is on, on the other foot now. There's a lot of damage that ha- has happened, a lot of lives lost. And if this war does not stop immediately, there will be a lot more thousands killed.
0: Salam, Fayyad. There, the former Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority. Now, I'm joined again, as always, by my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former Chief of Britain's MI6. Richard, let's just get into Dr. Oren's arguments. It's difficult now for Israel. It is losing. It's losing a lot of its international standing. They have had this very big public spat with the UN what can and should they do going forward? I mean, we heard from Salam Fayyad in this podcast. A lot of people have argued, as has Fayyad, that there has to be a sort of a rejuvenation of Palestinian leadership. But Salam Fayyad is pointing out that he thinks that leadership should include Hamas, it should include Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the fact that the previous leadership didn't meant it was less legitimate. Michael Oren has said in, in previous interviews He's made the point that Hamas enjoys a lot of support from Palestinian members of the public, from a lot of Palestinian demographic. Not all Palestinians support. So so how how do we how do we go forward from this?
1: Well, strangely, in the UK we actually have a model. The Provisional IRA was a terrorist movement, and then you know its political wing mutated into a, a political party that has participated actively in a peace process in Ireland. So all I'm saying is if Hamas were to, as it were, publicly disassociate themselves from terrorism and as it were, become a political negotiator in a process following this conflict, then I don't think it's completely to be ruled out that it could be part of a Palestinian alliance representing different interests. I mean, this is exactly what happened between the UK and Irish terrorism. they, they, They mutated into political movement. And they did that because they basically took a decision, the terrorists themselves, that they would achieve more through pursuing a political path of negotiation And I mean, the irony is they have done that. I mean, they've now emerged as a very, very significant political force in Ireland, you know, with that particular extreme nationalist bent. Okay, some of us may feel uncomfortable about this, but it's better than the violence that preceded it. Now, I'm not suggesting that as a model for Palestine, but I would advocate myself if there's going to be a political solution in Palestine, there has to be a political mechanism which somehow embraces the extremists in looking for a durable political solution. So I'm not surprised by that suggestion particularly. I just think we're a very, very long way still from expecting that sort of process to grow out of the circumstances of the aftermath of this conflict.
0: Well, I think that's true. And I think the Good Friday Agreement, It's you're not the first person to draw the parallels. But I would put down that I think a key difference is that the IRA leadership were there on the ground, whereas Hamas leadership... They are living it up in Doha, in Qatar, in Beirut, having a very nice time. Thank you very much. They are not in Gaza. They actually don't have skin in the game. If anything, they have skin in the game for the conflict to continue.
1: I agree with you on that. And I think that's why the parallel might, in theory, have some validity in practice. It's hard to see how it would be applied. And, of course, there is another fundamental difference which is the role of Iran behind Hamas, which I personally think, and I've said this already, that it's a defining issue. And, I mean, as Oren said, the Iranians don't care about the Palestinians. They have their own objectives. And, uh, you know, there is this exploitation of the Palestinian identity, for Iran to pursue its own objectives in the Middle East in a ruthless way.
0: I totally agree. If we have time for one more thought, perhaps, you know, I thought it was interesting what Michael Oren said about the occupation. We didn't really have the time to talk about the occupation because on the one hand, the flare-ups of war and conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza is one thing, But the reality of the ground in the West Bank is perhaps the bigger, more difficult problem to solve. The intractability now of so many settlers in the West Bank, the fact that there is now no longer any possibility for any kind of contiguous Palestinian state, given how many settlements have eaten into that territory, what hope is there for Palestinians to have sovereignty eventually, to not live under occupation? Or do you think it's time for us to start thinking about how a one-state solution would work? Well,
1: strangely, I've always advocated a one-state solution, because I think it is the only political solution that still has a little bit of life left in it. And that may be a surprising comment, But we've got way, way beyond the point, because of aggressive settlement policies on the East Bank, where a two-state solution could work. It's just not possible. There's too much to dismantle to create a two-state solution, plus the fact that within a two-state solution would be inherent for eternity the seeds of conflict. Whereas in a one-state solution, you actually could imagine two peoples within a single nation learning over time to live together. I mean, you could argue the Northern Irish parallel between uh, Protestant and Catholic as an example of what we have in mind, but it takes generations to achieve that. Uh, I thought what was interesting about Orrin I mean, he completely ruled out a one-state solution, but given his ideological views on the state of Israel, that's not particularly surprising. He ruled out a two-state solution, but then was talking about federal solutions, cantonment, other pragmatic, I wouldn't say call them solutions, pragmatic arrangements which might include some sort of confederation with Jordan. It's interesting, but let's face it, those ideas are even more complex to implement than anything that anyone's hitherto subjected, which is why I think if you go back to the simple idea of a one-state solution, but it requires a fundamental change of ideology amongst a large number of Israelis.
0: That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is one decision at com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.